Welcome to Face to Faith, a regular podcast and column focusing on the faith lives of interesting people. Brought to you by the Chicago Sun-Times and available on iTunes and SoundCloud. I am Bob Hergeth of the Sun-Times. This week, my guest has a really remarkable perspective on life and on death. She's Martha Twaddle, a physician who deals with seriously ill, often dying patients in the Chicago area. She's been doing this hospice or palliative care for decades and has seen what she describes as miracles in a, quote, kiss from the divine. Yes, dealing with death can be incredibly sad, she says, but those people can impart powerful lessons for the living. Okay, well, I have uh, some Martha Twaddle. Thanks so much for uh, talking at Face to Faith. My pleasure. And um, tell, uh, just tell people who you are. So I'm a physician of almost 30 years. Hard to believe. Time flies that fast. Mm-hmm. Um, actually a physician of more than 30 years, but practicing in the Northwestern system for um, close to that time, and uh, in the North Suburbs, mother of two who are grown, and my particular interest is in palliative medicine and supportive care, so caring for people with serious illness and helping them and their families. Gotcha. So really, um, you know, OBGYNs are obviously sort of sort of on the front end, right? They're delivering babies and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And you're sort of in later in life, um, you know, people with really very serious um, diseases and people dying and stuff like that for the most part, right? It's interesting that you'd use that analogy. I often think of it that way as though I were a thanatologic midwife. Um, <laughs> there is a lot that needs attention when people are in the phase of their life. The wonderful thing about palliative care is it's not just end of life. Hospice is very much palliative care at end of life. I get to work with people who have serious illnesses and you know, really life-changing diagnoses, but far upstream. So opportunities for relationships that spans years and opportunities to see and celebrate with them periods of time where the disease is under control or not at all interfering and lots of opportunities for kind of miraculous changes in illness as well. So that whole time frame, and then, of course, through the end of life with many people over these years, and that's a really sacred and inspiring time. Well, you mentioned miracle, miraculous. What, I mean, have you, is that sort of a secular <laughs> miraculous, or do you really, do you believe in miracles? Well, I do see miracles. I see things that confound our ability to explain them. I, I took care of a woman a number of years ago at 50 who had a devastating diagnosis. She had breast cancer that had spread into the linings around her brain. And with a, a treatment that we were, was more of an offering, so to speak, to appease her anxiety from her oncologist, um, she remitted completely of this illness for an entire year which left all of us with our mouths hanging open and her mother saying this was prayer. Whatever it was, it was wonderful. And she was able to achieve some pretty incredible things during that year and to live really well. I can't explain that. And that's what I love about working with people is there is much that surprises us every day. We're always learning. And every individual will write their own story and we get to be there and learn from them as they go through this. And that's actually, we're sort of jumping jumping ahead because I was going to talk about this a little bit um, um, in a little bit, but I'll ask about it now in terms of, I mean, do you, you about unexplainable things? I mean, so that's sort of, you know, are there any other sort of unexplainable things that sort of 
um, go to your heart in terms of, you know, thinking that this is, you know, a, a, some sort of divine, you know, intervention kind of thing, or have there been other instances of that? Or is it just sort of the quirks of science that you're not familiar with yet, or, or maybe both? the world around us and also to apply kind of experiments to understand our world and it's flawed because uh, we can't control for all the different assumptions and and medicine at its best is a beautiful balance of art and science you have to have both mm -hmm. the science and knowledge are only so good as how they are applied to that individual uh, and to their in the context of their family and to what's most important so yeah, every day what I see examples of people living with integrity and what I find just fascinating in this work is that everybody's an individual and we have our clinical trials and we have our medical knowledge, but as it comes to the application to the individual, it is a journey with that person. And it's going to be different <laughs> because right. they are unique. Isn't it amazing that there are millions and millions and millions of unique people? Mm -hmm. Really? Mm -hmm. And that, I think that, is, that gets you on your knees, doesn't it? That, that just said, wow. So we can apply this knowledge, but we're never quite sure how this individual is going to respond versus the next. And what will be the story? And to me, again, I... I very much look at my role as a perpetual student. I am there to learn, to explain and help them understand what's happening, but also to learn from them as they go through this because they are the person and the, and the people who love them also that are experiencing the illness and can translate that then for me. How did you get into this and why? You know, a lot of people listening would probably think, oh my gosh, it's, it's just constantly sad, you know, because it's sort of the end of, end of uh, the run for a lot of folks that you deal with and yet you've done it for decades you've chosen to do this is it yeah. sort of a calling you know I mean it, yeah, I, yeah I do think for me it is a calling and it is funny I'm a late convert to medicine even uh, I was not intending to go to medical school when I went to college I was actually quite opposed to the thought because I didn't really identify with pre-med people they weren't like me mm -hmm. but what happened was I did a research project one summer in college at Indiana University, and I was within the medical school, and I met the people, and I found the beginnings of my tribe, you know, people who were about art and science, and who were interested in people, and fascinated by all these different aspects of, of uh, science, but also what's really exciting in medicine is it's not abstract, you're applying science to care for people, mm -hmm. and you get to see its benefits, so that's exciting. So I ended up going in medicine, and then I did internal medicine at Northwestern in the 80s, and when I was chief residue, um, my mentor, Dr. Harry Miller, who's the head of hematology, asked me to be a hospice medical director. I had no idea what that was. Mm -hmm. uh, my aunt had died in hospice care when I was in medical school, and it had been quite impressive for me, that experience going through that with her, but I didn't really know anything about hospice. And I ended up as, initially as a volunteer for a year, be, becoming a hospice medical director for what was then the hospice of the North Shore. And I ended up staying with that position for 28 years as it grew uh, and became Midwest Care Center. So it, that's how I ended up getting into this area. And 
bottom line is it continued to affirm the kind of medical care that I believe in, which is team-based. So I work with a team of highly skilled professionals, social workers, chaplains, nurses of different types, so nurse practitioners and all sorts of um, different therapists, etc. So I love the team. And the second piece is it's body, mind, and spirit that are integrated. Mm-hmm. So it's the only area of medicine that really pays attention to the psychological aspects of care, the spiritual aspects of care, the physical aspects of care. All these dimensions are equally important. And if you look at our clinical practice guidelines, the National Consensus Project of Quality Field of Care, um, it speaks to how important these different areas are and how they all must be assessed. And as we create a plan of care for a person in the context of their family, be that biologic or chosen, um, it is really holistic mm-hmm. and it's dynamic. And I love that. That just is, that's what feeds me that through is seeing how this good care can make such a difference for people. And the ultimate to me is when a person looks at me and says, I feel so well cared for. Mm-hmm. Irrespective of the outcome, that they know that they are precious, that they know that they we're doing everything we can to help promote their wellness, even when things are not, the outcome isn't is exactly how we'd like. Mm-hmm. And um, what, I mean, so what is your sort of opinion on spiritual, you know, um, tending to patients? I mean, does, is it for everybody? Does it do, do the people that, that, that embrace sort of a, you know, the spiritual end of things toward the end, do they, do they die more peacefully or, or is it, or is there, how does it sort of manifest itself? Yeah. So I, you know, my, um, kind of perspective is that we are spiritual beings that are having physical experiences and that all the things that happen to us actually, contribute to our spiritual growth and have meaning beyond sometimes their first blush appearance. And every person is spiritual. How they manifest their spirituality will vary greatly. Mm-hmm. Some will find a voice within religion as a part of their spirituality. Others may not. And really, again, listening to what it is that's most important to people, how they find meaning, how they cope with serious illness. That's where this comes up a lot more mm-hmm. uh, these conversations that hold such richness of tell me what's most important to you um, tell me what gives you strength and and learning and listening um, yes it absolutely informs the end of life those people who are living with kind of a big picture in mind tend to make sense of what's happening to them differently than those who do not nurture and grow that part of their lives. Um, now, I will say to you that sometimes religion can make it harder mm-hmm. because some people put um, judgment on top of their their illness. You know, I'm sick because I did blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that may sometimes come from their background in terms of religious background. Right. So religion can help, help in coping. Um, sometimes institutions and rules can, we can choose to let them inflict or perceive that they're inflicting blame and judgment. Mm-hmm. So I definitely see, though, that that spiritual context, a sense of something bigger uh, in one's life, um, will definitely 
support someone as they go through serious illness. And I think a lot of like what Viktor Frankl said, you know, when suffering finds meaning, it is no longer suffering. Mm-hmm. But the purpose, the other big piece is connection and relationships. And that's what most people are very um, serious about when they're seriously ill. They don't think about work. They think about those that they love. Right. Is there a lot? So the people that maybe don't, that are suffering and, you know, have, are not sort of seeking out or finding maybe that, that they're tapping into their spirituality, it, it makes it worse in some instances or all instances or? Yeah, well, I think, you know, finding meaning and finding also potentially rituals or, um, or comfort in old practices or prayers or um, sacraments, anything that really, again, helps us find meaning and purpose and comfort will help us navigate a scary time in our lives. And certainly if we see ourselves as not defined by this physical life, but as part of something much greater, which is, you know, um, that everlasting life, that we are spiritual and we don't end, even though our chassis wear out (laughs) and disappear, um, that can, that doesn't, that does not by any means lessen the, the grief and the sadness of, of loss and connection and it's not like we we just look at oh you know, I'm going to die no big deal uh, it's definitely a big deal but it also helps us move along that journey um, and, and I see too that people who have a deep spirituality who are very much about meaning and purpose focus on those things that matter most when they are seriously ill and pay attention to them Mm-hmm. So that those, and it's usually about connections, it's usually about their family and other people. And what that leaves for all of us is that love, that sense of connection, um, the grief then softened by, oh my goodness, I'm so grateful for this person that I got to know for 50 years or for 30 years. or you know, We miss them terribly and we're at the same time so grateful that we even knew them. Is your is your view? I mean, again, I don't. Not that I talk to doctors all the time, but but you know, I, I would guess that that your sort of attitude and own belief system is, I'm gonna say, unique, but you know, unusual maybe for for medicine. You know, there's. Um, I think there are many physicians uh, who actually have a very deep faith or spirituality or even religious practice in order to find balance with the work that we're asked to do, um, particularly those of us who who face death and dying and despair on a daily basis. We need a place where we can unpack that and make sense of it as well. I find great comfort in the sacraments and in prayer and meditation. Um, my faith is my anchor, and what what has happened to me as I've gotten older is really an understanding that faith is a day-to-day journey of into the unknown. You know, when we're younger, we'd like it to be a little bit more predictable, and it, we live in shades of gray, don't we? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there are many, many questions that will never be answered. In fact, some of my 
um, friends who are of Jewish faith will say to me, now, Martha, don't don't ruin a good question with an answer. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually not about the answer. It's about the question. And it's also about the quest and the openness and the willingness to listen and learn. And that is really what our lives are about, is that inquisitiveness and that curiosity um, and the willingness to be wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and the willingness to be surprised, which is what the miracle often is. And you mentioned sacraments, and one of the sacraments out there is, is confession. And so, mm-hmm. you know, do you, are you, I'll bet, I'll bet you in your line of work, you hear a lot of confessions. I mean, not yeah. in a spiritual, yeah. you know, not in, not as a, a priest per se, but as a, as somebody who's there with somebody who might want to unload decades of guilt or remorse or whatever. Do you, do you? Are you a? Are you confessed to quite often? Yeah, it's really interesting that you highlight that. You know that it, historically the physician kind of priest combo idea has been part of history, mm-hmm. and and the the role of the physician as a healer is an interesting role. I think we've deviated from that as we've gotten too scientific and we're forgetting about our art. I think. Um, that loving ability to listen to people and and to reflect to them that they are heard. You know, I'm I'm not a priest where I can say, and you are forgiven, um, and probably fulfill what they might be looking for. But to be heard, really heard, and to be with someone in that true place of compassion, true empathy, mm-hmm. can provide healing. Um, to say, I'm here with you. I. I can't imagine how hard this might be. And also for them to know that they bless through their sharing, that being sharing their challenges is truly a blessing for us to be, wow, what a privilege that they trust us mm-hmm. to unload. That's what I'm aware of. And then because I'm part of a team, so I might see myself kind of, beginning some of these really deeply spiritual conversations with patients and then pulling in resources so that they can be better addressed as needed by professionals. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so we're sort of jumping around here. Tell me um, about your sort of upbringing and your religious upbringing. Yeah, so I was raised um, within the Presbyterian Church. Um, and attended, you know, Sunday school and all, and was part of a pretty conservative Christian group when I was in college, the Navigators, you know, memorized scripture and went out and talked to people about our faith and about Christ. And And where was was this? Where were you raised? Pardon me? I'm sorry, where were you raised? Presbyterian. No, no, uh, where? Were you in the Chicago Oh, I was, I'm a petroleum brat. I grew up all over the United States. Okay. <laughs> I'm meaning that every time my dad got promoted, we moved. Right. So I, I lived, I was born in the Pacific Northwest. I lived in Texas for a period of time. Then I lived in Northeast New Jersey um, and then uh, moved to Illinois in the late 60s and spent formative educational years in Indiana, which kind of Bible Belt and pretty conservative, mm-hmm. and came back then to the Chicago area, um, much more liberal. Um, many much more exposed to a diversity, which I love. Um, in this part of my life, um, my the f- 
tradition that I find the most um, kind of sustaining is the Episcopal tradition. Mm-hmm. Is I love liturgy. I, like I said, I love the sacraments. I love um, this, uh, this sense of being connected with the world when I go to church, that people all over the world are on the same liturgical calendar that I'm a part of, mm-hmm. and saying the same prayers and reading the same scriptural passages and that sense of community. I just love that. And I love the weekly Eucharist. Um, find that very renewing. And the idea of sharing together, you know, and what even Queen Elizabeth said, that you know, we don't know exactly what's in our heart, in the heart of each other, but we do share. Mm-hmm. We share in one cup, we share in one bread, we share in the sacrament, and that's what brings us together, and we're committed to struggle in the questions, like I said earlier, struggle together mm-hmm. in community, because the answers aren't always clear, and they may not be during our lifetime. Do you ever encounter a, a case, a person, a, a situation, you know, as a doctor that challenges um, your faith, you know, God, how can there be a God that this is happening, you know, that kind of thing? Mm-hmm. about the it's heartbreaking but we live in a broken world we are not in heaven this is a place of uh, limitations and sadness and cruelty to one another what inspires me is when I see what people can do for one another and I have had the incredible privilege of seeing people who are truly transcendent of their physical state to really be in a place of love and kind of amazing compassion. I'll share with you briefly a story. A gentleman I took care of, he was 36 years old when he was diagnosed with esophageal cancer that was um, incurable, unresectable. And every person who cared for this fellow, I'll call him Jim, just fell in love with him. He was such a remarkable, kind soul. And just, they were devastated by the fact that he had this terminal condition. And I remember going to see him one day at his home. We'd gotten his symptoms under great control, and he was sitting there with his fiance. And he looked at me and he said, you know, these have been the best days of my life. Wow. <laughs> and I, yeah, and that's why I was like, just speechless. And I said, tell me more. How, you know, here's a gentleman who is facing the end of life within days, likely, because he can barely eat, and he has this horrific cancer, and how is it these are the best days of your life? Tell me more. And he says, I've never lived like this before, where every conversation, every interaction, I am so fully conscious, conscious of its importance. And I don't waste time. I spend time. I give time to those things that matter most in my life. Mm -hmm. And that's the people that he loves. To me, that is transcendence. Mm -hmm. And witnessing that, that power of the spirit to move beyond the physical, is such an affirmation that we are spiritual. Mm -hmm. Wow. Makes you want to get on your knees when you see that. Incredible. What what do you think... um, it sounds like obviously you believe in an afterlife that this isn't it. What do you think it looks like? Mm, well, the sweetness that I've seen in terms of um, the way people can love and 
care for one another, that sense of ecstasy that we experience when we are fully connected, whether it's in prayer or whether it's through an experience that we have with a loved one where we just are totally in that place of love. To me, that's the definition of ecstasy. Mm-hmm. I think also of, um, of um, David Steindl Ross writing when he talks about the difference between chronologic time, which is what we live in, and Kairos the time that is timeless, um, that's what I think it is about. Um, I really, you know, I've seen the faces of many who have died, and even my own father, um, who when we closed his mouth was smiling. Um, I know that it must be about being fully loved, and what an experience that would be. Have you seen sort of, for lack of a better word, evidence of an afterlife of a God at the time of death? You know, is there something, I mean, maybe the smile is it, or but that could also be sort of physiologically explained, right? But is there is there anything that sort of you've seen or felt that, that shows, you know, this person is, is moved to a good place, you know, and that there is an afterlife, yeah. there is a God? What? How does that work? Well, it, going back to where we started when you talk about being a midwife for the end, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you, I feel as though I'm accompanying people into that first part of thin place where change happens and they move forward and I can't. And what I can see is their reaction to that transition. So I've witnessed people reaching out with a look of, just, it's hard to describe, but unbridled joy. I've seen um, smiles. I've seen calmness. Um, People talking to those who've already died is very, very common, very common, Mm -hmm. and not upset about it, you know, just having these conversations. So I think we can't see beyond that veil. We can only see how people begin that transition and what is really what blankets it supports it and um, buoys it up always is this person to person a sense of love and being loved and and to me heaven is about entering a place of full love where there's not any anything else it's all about love which is what our faith is really helping us to translate and understand and try to live within does it, you know, 50 years ago, I don't think you'd, we'd have doctors talking this way, right? I mean, it's, it's, uh, how has medicine changed? I mean, obviously it has because now there is this sort of hospice end of things that didn't, I don't think, really exist, uh, certainly not in the same way as it does now. How is, how is healthcare and medicine evolved in this way by your, you know, understanding? So I think probably 80 years ago, we had more doctors talking this way because they didn't have a lot to offer people. Um, if you think about it, much of healthcare and improvements in the science um, re- remained kind of flat until antibiotics came around and then vaccines, and that changed healthcare. And then the, it's really been the last, even my time in medicine, the last 30 years where, oh my goodness gracious, <laughs> right. you talk about the rapid changes in, and the technology and the science um, have really eclipsed and I think have gotten somewhat too distracting 
Because, again, the application of the science is, and the technology to the benefit of the individual is really what the physician and others involved as um, professionals need to be about. So I think, fortunately, most of us went into medicine because we basically wanted to take care of people. So our motives and our hearts were about that. We like taking care of people. If anything, physicians nowadays are horrifically discouraged. The burnout rate in medicine is well over 60%. And in large part, that's because we're trying to deal with all this technology. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to um, <laughs> live with the demands of the business of medicine that are just we feel encroaching much too far into our world. So I think in response to that, more of us are talking about this, Mm -hmm. that taking care of people and that the spiritual side of this work for ourselves and for them is what's most important and trying to reestablish the balance of the art and science and business. There's a great book just came out by a young woman pediatrician who's also a healthcare administrator, Haley, and I can't think of her last name, hyphenated, called Back to Balance. Mm-hmm. And she talks about this, how it's not about one being more important. We have to have good science. We've got to have good business practices. And we have to have the art. And what's happened is the business and the science are kind of overbearing right. <laughs> on the person, on the relationships that we have with our patients. And that's why we do what we do, is about those relationships. And you mentioned the burnout. I mean, what's so interesting speaking to you, it seems like, you know, um, out of almost any, you know, medical role that, that like, you should be, you should have burned out, you know, <laughs> with all this, with all this death and all this. But it, instead, it's, it seems, if I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, that the people that you deal with, probably not all, but, you know, just in the aggregate, um, they sort of sustain you in a way and they and they yeah. make you stronger as opposed to the reverse, which is what I think logic, like me, logically, I would think. Is that right? That's a, that's a wonderful perception. I think there's two things that help. One is that I work in a team and that I have these incredible people that I work with each day. So an opportunity for real-time support, for sharing in the sadness, right? The the burden of any type of sense of sadness can be divided on the shoulders of many. We are in this together. Mm-hmm. And the other piece is the miracle of working with people who are seriously ill. It, what drove me crazy when I did primary care medicine was arguing with insurance companies, trying to deal with pre-authorizations, and putting up with, with situations where the person really wasn't sick, they were just inconvenienced. Mm-hmm. Where in my world, The people are sick, (laughs) and we start talking about the things that are most important. And yes, it does. It does feed my soul, because I go home at the end of the day, and I feel like I've done meaningful work, that I've been a part of something bigger than me every single day, and that is inspiring. How many, not that, I mean, how many, how many patients have you, do you think you've, you've dealt with that have, that have, you know, that have. Yeah. Died. There's going to be a lot of people in heaven to party with, and I know. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, you know, I have obviously lost count, um, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people. 
over the years. Mm -hmm. Their faces and their stories continue to encourage me and teach me. There are many who come to front of mind very quickly over the years, even from medical school. Really? Because, oh yeah, I can think of Joe who taught me about heart disease, who died. Um, he was he looked he looked so much like Frank Sinatra for one thing, uh-huh. and he was this very young man with god awful heart disease. And we became quite close. I was a senior medical student, and he literally his first death he was resuscitated occurred with me sitting at his bedside. He died in front of me. Um, And he taught me what it's like to live with vascular heart disease. I will never forget what he went through and the symptoms he had. And he also, his resiliency and his spirit. And you know what was most important to Joe? His family. Mm -hmm. And I still keep in touch with his family through Facebook all these years later. So that was like 1983. Wow. Yep. I will never forget Joe. What, what, what is, if you were, if you were regulating every medical school in America, what would the, what would you um, impose, recommend, urge um, that's not going on now or not going on now enough? So I spend a lot of emphasis on the balance between the science and the art. And I think making sure that the humanities are a part of education as we prepare for medical school and even in medical school. So great literature, poetry, music, things that enhance our lives and also that we can then find a bridge to communicate with people. Creative writing is really important in medicine and has gotten lost because we're in these electronic medical writing records. Mm-hmm. But think of it, the story of the person and that narrative and capturing that narrative is really important. It carries their story forward. We spend the time. And I say to the people I teach, I want to be able to practically smell the person. Could you use adjectives and adverbs and really help them truly come alive for me mm-hmm. in your description of who they are and what's most important to them. So I would make sure that education includes that. It's not, you know, people are not reflected in their numbers. You can die with a normal hemoglobin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. But your story is, and how you're experiencing your illness is what I need to hear and understand and also needs to be captured in our medical record. Got you. What, people listening out there, what would be your advice to those um, who are not terminal or not suffering? What just, just advice for just your regular person out there that based on your knowledge? I mean, you're one of those, you're in one of those professions and there aren't many of them, but that really I think kind of understands how life ticks more than other you know, um, more than other others, because obviously you see it, you see death and all this kind of, so knowing what you know, what is the best piece of advice you give to somebody who's not terminal, not sick? We're all, you know, here's the irony is we're all terminal. And I think that's where we in America in particular like to pretend (laughs) that it's not going to end. And even 90 year olds will look at me and say, how is this happening to me? <laughs> for Pete's sake. You know, right. we are not going to live forever. So 
So living with a realization that life is precious, that our relationships are precious, that this at some point will end. If we live with the end in mind, then we end, and we think, take time in our lives to think about what's it going to be like for me when I am blank, blank, blank. And how would I want, to, where would I want to be, who would I want to be with when I die? If something should happen to me suddenly, what are the messages I need to leave behind? Most people who I work with will say, certainly if caught by surprise, oh, I wish, oh, I should. We don't have time for that. You know, if we could live with intention and each day do things that matter most, and in particular nurture and sustain those relationships around us that matter most, that's a life well lived. A life well lived is a death that goes well. Um, and when we don't pay attention to the fact that we are frail people that will eventually stop medicine or no medicine, um, that's where we get ourselves into trouble. Mm -hmm. Do you ever, just you personally, do you ever fear death? How do you view it personally? Um, I wouldn't say I fear it. Um, and I'm not like Woody Allen saying, I'm, I'm not afraid to die, I just don't want to be there when it happens. That's a famous <laughs> quote, I love that. You know, what I um, feel a tenderness about is loss and grief. And we experience that all the time, even when we're not dying. Right. You know, if, if I have an incredible family. My kids, my husband, my extended family, my friends. Um, yeah, it's that, you know, evokes a tenderness for me. And... We're never ready to die. It's really, there's some who get so tired, they're like, just let me go. Right. But we as humans are so connected and so, um, you know, they, there's these wonderful relationships. So I don't look forward to that, but I also think a lot about what's worse than death um, and convey that to my family. You know, if I were on a machine, unable to communicate, unable to speak to them, do not maintain me in that state. Don't let it happen. It would be worse than death itself for me. Mm -hmm. So them knowing, that's an advanced directive. Right. You know, and so those are things that are really, really important is having conversations about what matters most. That's what it comes down to. An advanced directive is tell me about what's most important to you. And mine... It's pretty comical because it even says things like, don't leave the TV on, no high-pitched sopranos with lots of vibrato, I'd rather have, you know, low-pitched tenor music or cello. <laughs> yeah, it, it just knowing then that my family knows what comforts me and they'll find comfort in providing that for me. Okay. And uh, just a couple more things I'll let you go. I know this, is, this has been great. I mean... Do you think some people who are not, well, you say everybody's, nobody's ready to die, but some people die happier or, or, or more, ex they accept it more than others. I mean, do you think that people that, you know, is there a sort of a dark side of the other side, you know, where people who aren't ready and they're restless and they were unhappy and they didn't, they had a lot of um, leftover things to do here, you know, that, that, that sort of kind of translates into the other side, or do you think everything's just sort of peace after death? have a lot of unresolved issues 
um, you're absolutely right, thrash and struggle, and um, it can be really rough. Uh, and certainly pre-existing psychiatric conditions and things like that that haven't been well-managed well um, can make it tougher. Young mothers um, leaving their children, mm -hmm. you know, there's a suffering that we all feel. So there are things that can definitely fuel that struggle. What's on the other side? I've only caught the glimpse of reflected in the faces of some, but I don't know. Mm -hmm. All I, you know, what we can reassure people is that they are loved and they will not be forgotten and they will continue to be loved. And certainly, you know, my experience has also been things have happened after a death that can't really be explained other than a, like, well that was a little bit of the divine a little kiss of the divine that reassurances um, could you give an example hard, hard otherwise to explain could you give an example on what that might yeah, be so years ago we um, colleague in my she's a nurse I'm, I was a doctor we cared for this amazing woman uh, I'll call her Pat and Pat had um Medicine, colon cancer, and we, we both just love this woman to bits. And my colleague asked her, she said, you know, would you just let me know after you die? <laughs> she says, would you tell me you're okay? And Pat, like, rolls her eyes, and she says, come on. She goes, you know, it's hard enough to die. Now you want me to send you a sign? <laughs> <laughs> and she goes, look, I'll, I'll do my best. It won't be lightning or anything. Well, maybe I will. You know, we'll see what I can do. So the night she died, which was very peaceful, she had been kind of unresponsive for a few days, and she basically, as I, I look at it, it's, it's all about the breath. God breathes life into us. At the beginning, we gasp and cry it in, and then we exhale and we're breathed back to God. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Beautiful. And she did just that, just this gentle exhalation, and she was gone. And as my colleague drove home that night, it was like, in the morning, the entire western sky was alive with lightning. No rain, <laughs> no thunder, just lightning. Wow. And she just, you can imagine, is just crying her eyes out mm -hmm. <laughs> because it was so beautiful. And, you know, could it have been a coincidence? Oh, sure. But it had meaning and it, again, connected the sense of timelessness with this person that we both loved. You know, my father... After my dad died, my dad loved hummingbirds. Every single morning, I would come downstairs and there would be a hummingbird at the window. And, I, you know, I'd go, hi, Dad. <laughs> you know, whether it's coincidence or a loving affirmation, it has meaning. And it connects me to the treasure of that, that relationship. Wow. Yeah, that's great. Um, well, Martha, what else? Is there anything else that uh, we're not talking about that you wanted to mention? encouragement that it gets people to stop and pay attention for just a bit. I think that truthfully stopping and paying attention and connecting deeply with what is most important is the most important thing we can do because we don't know. You know, for my people who I care for, most of them know they have a sense of time. They have a sense of what might be the end of their life. But the reality is I could die before they do. Because accidents happen, 
catastrophes. And in this crazy world, look at what happens, right? Mm -hmm. You go to church and you get shot. So we have to live every day fully. We have to, can't just go through the motions. We have to pay attention. And our spiritual self is what lasts, is what is most important. Our physical self holds that. We gotta take good care of the chassis. Uh, very, very important. But it really is about growing and developing our spiritual self. So important. That was Dr. Martha Twaddle, a palliative care physician in the Chicago area on Face to Faith, a regular podcast and column brought to you by the Chicago Sun-Times. I am Bob Hergeth of the Sun-Times. Please think about subscribing to us on iTunes, and if you'd like, leave a comment. This podcast was edited. Thanks for listening. <laughs>